not sure if we have folks on Zoom, but we do. Uh, we're starting a new practice. Um, so I'm just going to say I'm Melissa. I am a white body, cisgender female, 40 years old, with some graying hair. Let me just confirm what you probably already know, and that is I am no expert, at least not in queer theology. So I am learning alongside of many of us here. At a basic level, I am able to jump in to scripture through the lens of queer theology because of similar, similar theological lenses that I've long been shaped by. And over the last few years, I've not only been in deep community with my siblings who identify as queer, but I've also really been learning what it means to be at home in my own body to take delight in who God created me to be, to recognize what my body already knows about the divine, and to affirm the same in all of my siblings. This is something that our queer siblings lead us in oftentimes, and so I'm grateful for that. This year, as a church family, we are focusing on renewal. The pace might feel a bit different, I hope. Um, but we are beginning this year with our identity as followers of Jesus, and so we have just stepped into this two-part series on querying identity and composting. And we're going to do so focusing on the book of John as shared by the First Nations version, so if you want to grab a copy to borrow this morning, you're welcome to do so, or if you do not have one in your household, please just sign off your name and it's yours to take with you. Uh, as we read through the book of John with the gift and lens of queer theology, we are challenged to get outside of ourselves and the ways in which colonialism or modernity have shaped us. And that is to say that we have largely been shaped to ignore or neglect our bodies and what our bodies know or feel. It has been a dehumanization a loss of love and a loss of faith that is embodied, and we aim to reclaim that. Brittany kicked off this series last week with an introduction to queer theology, including some basic definitions and a declaration that the incarnation was God's coming out to the world. It was an invitation to more intimate relationship and to love better. I want to encourage you, if you missed last week or the sermon that she preached on the 18th of December, I don't do this very often, but if you missed those, please go back and listen to them. They are highly important and moving in terms of where we're headed together, and I think you'll be glad to hear. Brittany did share that queering the text means finding ways in which the text pushes against the status quo or the ways God is found either with the people on the outside or in the ways that characters behave that would align with ideas that are outside what is accepted. Which then points to how God, in reality, is already quite queer, if you will, leading us to embrace um, our identity as followers of Jesus and queering our identity. Today's text is John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And this is the miracle of Jesus turning water into wine. I want to make mention of two things. Uh, first, that from week to week, we want to encourage you to get into the text. 
We are not going to read all of the book of John together here in our gathering, but we want to encourage you to cover whatever comes between what we do cover in the gatherings. And so really get into it. Get into the book of John. Uh, I kind of got into it so much this week, into the text, into the whole water to wine thing, that um, as John mentioned, uh, Israel was not feeling well this week. And I left him at home, and he's really not good at drinking his water. And so before I left him for a couple hours one day, I yelled at him. I said, you need to drink all that wine before I get back. <laughs> <laughs> I need water. See ya. <laughs> anyway, get into the text, all right? Get into it. While Jesus' first miracle at the wedding of Cana is a familiar story, Let's see how God shows up with the people on the outside. Bear witness to the divine invitation to be who we are and to consider how that impacts us as followers of Jesus. You're welcome to just listen or follow along if you'd like. John chapter 2. Three days later, there was a wedding in the village of Reeds, which is Canaan in the territory of Circle of Nations, which is Galilee. Bitter Tears, who is Mary, the mother of Creator Sets Free, who is Jesus, was there. Creator Sets Free and the ones who walked the road with him were invited as guests to the wedding. During the celebration, they ran out of wine. This would have been a great embarrassment to the groom and his family. So the mother of Creator Sets Free said to him, Son, they have no more wine. Honored woman, he, he said to her, why are you telling me? Is this our concern? It is not yet my time to show who I am. But his mother turned to the helpers and said, do whatever he says. They looked to him and waited for his instructions. There were six traditional stone water pots used for purification ceremonies that could hold large amounts of water. Fill them to the top, Creator sets free, told them, and take some to the headmen of the feast. They filled the pots until they could hold no more and did what he said. The water had turned into wine. The headman did not know where it had come from, but the helpers who were serving the wine knew. The headman took a drink and called to the groom. Everyone serves the best wine first, and after the guests have had enough to drink, they bring out the watered-down wine. But even though you serve good wine at first, you have saved the best wine for last. This was the first of the signs through which Creator set free, displayed his power. When his new followers saw this, their trust in him grew stronger. All of this happened in the territory of Circle of Nations, at village of Reeds. After this, he went with his mother, his brothers, and his followers to the village of Comfort, Capernaum, where he stayed for a few days. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I would simply, or maybe not so simply, like us to just assess the scene this morning, to pay attention to what we need to pay attention to. The first thing I think we need to pay attention to is that we have Jesus, Mary, and the disciples. 
These characters obviously have an existing relationship, and they were all invited to this wedding, maybe because they knew the family, or because of their reputation while they're in town. Likely, though, they were invited along with the entire rest of the village, okay? It's, it's like everyone and their brother, or everyone and their mother, in this case, is in attendance at this wedding. And of course, Mary and Jesus have a unique relationship, as she is his mother. But I'd like you to notice something here, that she's really only referred to as the mother of Jesus, in this text. And this is a pattern we're going to see continue throughout the book of John. The mother of Jesus is how she's referred to. And it is the mother of Jesus, who we know is Mary, who says, Son, they have no more wine. Now we all know what it's like when a parent says something to us that it can really imply some action. So, of course, we can read it as a request that Jesus do something about the situation. Mary knows who Jesus truly is and what he's capable of. And it might seem here that maybe Jesus is trying to figure out if he's allowed to really be who he is. His response seems a bit strange. Maybe even disrespectful. He calls her, in this text, honored woman, but most translations, it just says woman. I don't think I'd respond too well if you called me that. Um, and he continues with, what are you telling me? Is this our concern? It is not yet my time to show who I am. Let me just say that the typical commentator will come to conclusions based on this larger pattern in the Gospel of John of Jesus calling her woman, coupled with not acting unless prompted by God, and therefore, in this case, that Jesus is actually distancing himself from her authority by calling her woman, not mother. And I don't mean like not mother, as in like Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, not mother, but not mother. That movie has been in my head multiple times this morning. We got sidebar. We got on the road this morning and I pulled it like on the highway behind someone with Oklahoma plane. I was like, Oklahoma, Oklahoma! <laughs> I just couldn't get it out of my mind. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> anyway, they would conclude that Jesus is trying to distance himself from her authority. However, what if Jesus' body is telling him something different? Not to distance himself, but the opposite. What if prompted by what his mother says, he hears an invitation to fully be himself? What if, like in the presence of the divine, carried in Mary's own body, John the Baptist leapt in Elizabeth's womb. The divine in that moment leapt in Jesus at her request, prompting him to find joy and to act out of the divine that was carried in his own body. In any event, 
This would be his first miracle. The first time that he shows his true identity. Beautifully and intimately revealed in the presence of family and friends before going out into public ministry. The second thing I think we need to pay attention to is that his mother turned to the helpers and said, do whatever he says. It is not common to consider the helpers in this story. They are the outsiders at this wedding feast, the people who are unseen. Given the Greek word here, we might want to clarify some things, that this word is actually um, the Greek word diakonos, which means servants, okay? We sometimes use the word as deacons, but it means servants. So they were actually there likely as hired hands to do a job, like wait on tables to serve people, rather than actually being slaves in terms of servants. Which, no doubt, were also common in those days and may have been in attendance as well. Helpers. And I'm curious if maybe whether there were lots and lots of helpers at this ginormous wedding feast, or if Mary and Jesus were already in proximity to the helpers, maybe even associating with these outsiders at the party. And then we have the phrase, do whatever he says, to which I think, really? What a strange thing to say. And he, his response is strange. It could have probably been more strange, but six pots? These are large. It is known that these pots could hold, if filled to the top, as they were, with 96 to 144 gallons each. Each. That's some heavy lifting, for starters. Yeah, that's a lot. You can do the math on like how heavy that would be. I don't want to do that. Uh, but in hearing these words, I would have thought, like, you, you crazy. I'm like, no. And then eventually I would have been like, that's a lot of wine, right? A lot of wine. So that's the second thing. The third thing I think we need to pay attention to is that the water turns to wine. Obviously that's like on my brain, right? And why did Jesus meet this seemingly very silly need? There are a few options. First of all, as guests, Jesus and the disciples, they were obligated to bring a gift. No surprise, you know how this works, right? So why not just make more wine? Here's your gift. It's an option. Not to mention, uh, water was not actually all that safe to drink in those days, and we don't know what the source of this water was. And so it's a real need, a real physical need, that Jesus does not ignore. As our text point out, an additional option is that it would have been embarrassing to the groom and his family if they ran out of this celebration. And this celebration not only included the entire village, but it probably would have carried on for a week or, or more, because that was the custom. Wine was seen as one of those good things that, were, that was created for people to really enjoy, and so most people consumed it. And weddings were even planned around the harvest and production of wine. And so to run out of wine would have been a major embarrassment. Yes. It is suggested that Jesus not only saves a bridegroom from embarrassment of a, of a shortage, 
but that he relieved the bridegroom of the obligation to compensate for the lack of provision should any of his guests invite him to their own wedding. And I can't help but think of the redemptive connection between him. But let me also point out a few things that we know about wine in those days that also become a bit symbolic in this first miracle. Abundant wine was considered a sign of blessing and prosperity from God. Lacking wine was a symbol of judgment and calamity. And wine served as a sign of the age of salvation. In many ways, Jesus' instructions and actions are outside of what is accepted. I wondered how strange the request was, and if the helpers might even get in trouble, you know, for taking pots for purification ceremonies to then fill with wine. I don't know what would have happened to them. Commentator Ben Witherington suggests that the events of the day stir up imagery that Jesus replaces the rituals and institutions of early Judaism with something more life-giving and enduring. In other words, Jesus, in revealing his true self, reveals the gift of new life right there among us. The use of wine is then a symbol that the kingdom of God has arrived in the presence of the long-awaited Messiah. Jesus shows his true identity. But notice to whom he shows his true self. This is the fourth thing I think we need to pay attention to. Verse 10 says, The headman did not know where it, the wine, had come from, but the helpers who were serving the wine knew. The helpers. They are the ones who looked at him and waited for instructions. They are the ones who responded. They are the ones to whom Jesus fully revealed himself. And they knew. And when, as the text says, his new followers saw this, their trust in him grew stronger. Surely, his followers included those disciples who came with him. But in the Greek, in verse 11, which is more closely tied to verse 10, where the helpers are mentioned, the text literally says, these disciples of his. It was the people who were on the outside of the story who were following Jesus that day, who were learning from him and being discipled by him. And in laboring on the sidelines of that wedding feast, God is being made known to, among, and through them, the helpers, these disciples. As followers of Jesus, may we not only respond to those loved ones who hold us and give us life, hearing their words that call us to be fully known. But may we also be like the helpers. May we respond and do whatever he says. As strange as it may be, outside the norm, risky, unacceptable to some, 
erasing of boundaries, and fostering a haven of belonging. May we be like the helpers, those who engage in the full story, in all its mess and difficulty and truth and beauty. Those who aren't just ignorantly enjoying the fruit of someone else's labor like the head man and those at the feast, but who participate in laboring with the divine. Choosing to trust the divine in our own bodies, ready to follow Jesus from and on the outside where the kingdom of God is being made known. May we pray. Will you pray with me?